This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Crandall. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 1, Chapter 1. Home is the resort of love, of joy, of peace and plenty, where, supporting and supported, polished friends and dear relations mingle into bliss. Thompson On the pleasant banks of the Garonne, in the province of Gascony, stood, in the year 1584, the chateau of Monsieur Saint-Aubert. From its windows were seen the pastoral landscapes of Guienne and Gascony, stretching along the river, gay with luxuriant woods and vine, and plantations of olives. To the south, the view was bounded by the majestic Pyrenees, whose summits, veiled in clouds or exhibiting awful forms, seen and lost again, as the partial vapours rolled along were sometimes barren and gleamed through the blue tinge of the air, and sometimes frowned with forests of gloomy pine that swept downward to their base. These tremendous precipices were contrasted by the soft green of the pastures and woods that hung upon their skirts, among whose flocks and herds and simple cottages the eye, after having scaled the cliffs above, delighted to repose. To the north and to the east the plains of Guienne and Languedoc were lost in the mist of distance. On the west Gascony was bounded by the waters of Biscay. Monsieur Saint-Aubert loved to wander with his wife and daughter on the margin of the Garonne, and to listen to the music that floated on its waves. He had known life in other forms than those of pastoral simplicity, having mingled in the gay and in the busy scenes of the world. But the flattering portrait of mankind, which his heart had delineated in early youth, his experience had too sorrowfully corrected. Yet, amidst the changing visions of life, his principles remained unshaken, his benevolence unchilled, and he retired from the multitude more in pity than in anger, to scenes of simple nature, to the pure delights of literature, and to the exercise of domestic virtues. He was a descendant from the younger branch of an illustrious family, and it was designed that the deficiency of his patrimonial wealth should be supplied either by a splendid alliance in marriage, or by success in the intrigues of public affairs. But Saint-Aubert had too nice a sense of honour to fulfil the latter hope, and too small a portion of ambition to sacrifice what he called happiness to the attainment of wealth. After the death of his father, he married a very amiable woman, his equal in birth, and not his superior in fortune. The late Monsieur Saint-Aubert's liberality, or extravagance, had so much involved his affairs, that his son found it necessary to dispose of a part of the family domain, and, some years after his marriage, he sold it to Monsieur Quenel, the brother of his wife, and retired to a small estate in Gascony, where conjugal felicity and parental duties divided his attention with the treasures of knowledge and the illuminations of genius. To this spot he had been attached from his infancy. He had often made excursions to it when a boy, and the impressions of delight given to his mind by the homely kindness of the grey-headed peasant to whom it was entrusted, and whose fruit and cream never failed, had not been obliterated by succeeding circumstances. The green pastures, along which he had so often bounded in the exultation of health 
and youthful freedom, the woods under whose refreshing shade he had first indulged that pensive melancholy which afterwards made a strong feature of his character, the wild walks of the mountains, the river on whose waves he had floated, and the distant plains, which seemed boundless as his early hopes, were never after remembered by Saint-Aubert but with enthusiasm and regret. At length he disengaged himself from the world, and retired hither, to realize the wishes of many years. The building, as it then stood, was merely a summer cottage, rendered interesting to a stranger by its neat simplicity, or the beauty of the surrounding scene, and considerable additions were necessary to make it a comfortable family residence. Saint-Aubert felt a kind of affection for every part of the fabric which he remembered in his youth, and would not suffer a stone of it to be removed, so that the new building, adapted to the style of the old one, formed with it only a simple and elegant residence. The taste of Madame Saint-Aubert was conspicuous in its internal finishing, where the same chaste simplicity was observable in the furniture, and in the few ornaments of the apartments that characterized the manners of its inhabitants. The library occupied the west side of the chateau, and was enriched by a collection of the best books in the ancient and modern languages. This room opened upon a grove, which stood on the brow of a gentle declivity that fell towards the river, and the tall trees gave it a melancholy and pleasing shade, while from the windows the eye caught, beneath the spreading branches, the gay and luxuriant landscape stretching to the west, and overlooked on the left by the bold precipices of the Pyrenees. Adjoining the library was a greenhouse, stored with scarce and beautiful plants, for one of the amusements of Saint-Aubert was the study of botany, and among the neighboring mountains, which afforded a luxurious feast to the mind of the naturalist, he often passed the day in the pursuit of his favorite science. He was sometimes accompanied in these little excursions by Madame Saint-Aubert, and frequently by his daughter, when, with a small osier basket to receive plants, and another filled with cold refreshments, such as the cabin of the shepherd did not afford, they wandered away among the most romantic and magnificent scenes, nor suffered the charms of nature's lowly children to abstract them from the observance of her stupendous works. When weary of sauntering among cliffs that seemed scarcely accessible but to the steps of the enthusiast, and where no track appeared on the vegetation, but what the foot of the lizard had left, they would seek one of those green recesses, which so beautifully adorned the bosom of these mountains, where, under the shade of the lofty larch or cedar, they enjoyed their simple repast, made sweeter by the waters of the cool stream that crept along the turf, and by the breath of wild flowers and aromatic plants that fringed the rocks and inlaid the grass. Adjoining the eastern side of the greenhouse, looking towards the plains of Languedoc, was a room which Emily called hers, and which contained her books, her drawings, her musical instruments, with some favorite birds and plants. Here she usually exercised herself in elegant arts, cultivated only because they were congenial to her taste, and in which native genius, assisted by the instructions of Monsieur and Madame Saint-Aubert, made her an early proficient. The windows of this room were particularly pleasant. They descended to the floor, and opening upon the little lawn that surrounded the house, the eye was led between groves of almond, palm-trees, flowering ash and myrtle, to the distant landscape where the Garonne wandered. The peasants of this gay climate were often seen on an evening, when the day's labour was done, 
dancing in groups on the margin of the river. Their sprightly melodies, debonair steps, the fanciful figure of their dances, with the tasteful and capricious manner in which the girls adjusted their simple dress, gave a character to the scene entirely French. The front of the chateau, which, having a southern aspect, opened upon the grandeur of the mountains, was occupied on the ground floor by a rustic hall and two excellent sitting-rooms. The first floor, for the cottage had no second story, was laid out in bedchambers, except one apartment that opened to a balcony, and which was generally used for a breakfast-room. In the surrounding ground, Saint-Aubert had made very tasteful improvements, yet such was his attachment to objects he had remembered from his boyish days, that he had in some instances sacrificed taste to sentiment. There were two old larches that shaded the building, and interrupted the prospect. Saint-Aubert had sometimes declared that he believed he should have been weak enough to have wept at their fall. In addition to these larches, he planted a little grove of beech, pine, and mountain ash. On a lofty terrace, formed by the swelling bank of the river, rose a plantation of orange, lemon, and palm-trees, whose fruit, in the coolness of evening, breathed delicious fragrance. With these were mingled the few trees of other species. Here, under the ample shade of a plane-tree, that spread its majestic canopy towards the river, Saint-Aubert loved to sit in the fine evenings of summer with his wife and children, watching beneath its foliage, the setting sun, the mild splendor of its light fading from the distant landscape, till the shadows of twilight melted its various features into one tint of sober grey. Here, too, he loved to read, and to converse with Madame Saint-Aubert, or to play with his children, resigning himself to the influence of those sweet affections which are ever attendant on simplicity in nature. He has often said, while tears of pleasure trembled in his eyes, that these were moments infinitely more delightful than any passed amid the brilliant and tumultuous scenes that are courted by the world. His heart was occupied. It had, what can be so rarely said, no wish for a happiness beyond what it experienced. The consciousness of acting right diffused a serenity over his manners, which nothing else could impart to a man of moral perceptions like his, and which refined his sense of every surrounding blessing. The deepest shade of twilight did not send him from his favorite plane-tree. He loved the soothing hour, when the last tints of light die away, when the stars, one by one, tremble through ether, and are reflected on the dark mirror of the waters. That hour, which of all others, inspires the mind with pensive tenderness, and often elevates it to sublime contemplation. When the moon shed her soft rays among the foliage, he still lingered, and his pastoral supper of cream and fruits was often spread beneath it. Then, on the stillness of night, came the song of the nightingale, breathing sweetness and awaking melancholy. The first interruptions to the happiness he had known since his retirement were occasioned by the death of his two sons. He lost them at that age when infantine simplicity is so fascinating, and though, in consideration of Madame Saint-Aubert's distress, he restrained the expression of his own, and endeavoured to bear it, as he meant, with philosophy. He had in truth no philosophy that could render him calm to such losses. One daughter was now his only surviving child, and, while he watched the unfolding of her infant character with anxious fondness, he endeavoured with unremitting effort to counteract those traits in her disposition which might hereafter lead her from happiness. She had discovered in her early years uncommon delicacy of mind, 
warm affections, and ready benevolence, but with these was observable a degree of susceptibility too exquisite to admit of lasting peace. As she advanced in youth, this sensibility gave a pensive tone to her spirits, and a softness to her manner, which added grace to beauty, and rendered her a very interesting object to persons of a congenial disposition. But Saint-Aubert had too much good sense to prefer a charm to a virtue, and had penetration enough to see that this charm was too dangerous to its possessor to be allowed the character of a blessing. He endeavoured, therefore, to strengthen her mind, to inure her to habits of self-command, to teach her to reject the first impulse of her feelings, and to look, with cool examination, upon the disappointments he sometimes threw in her way. While he instructed her to resist first impressions, and to acquire that steady dignity of mind that can alone counterbalance the passions, and bear us, as far as is compatible with our nature, above the reach of circumstances, he taught himself a lesson of fortitude, for he was often obliged to witness, with seeming indifference, the tears and struggles which his caution occasioned her. In person, Emily resembled her mother, having the same elegant symmetry of form, the same delicacy of features, and the same blue eyes full of tender sweetness. But, lovely as was her person, it was the varied expression of her countenance, as conversation awakened the nicer emotions of her mind, that threw such a captivating grace around her. Those tenderer spirits that shun the careless eye, and in the world's contagious circle, die. Saint-Aubert cultivated her understanding with the most scrupulous care. He gave her a general view of the sciences, and an exact acquaintance with every part of elegant literature. He taught her Latin and English, chiefly that she might understand the sublimity of their best poets. She discovered in her early years a taste for works of genius, and it was Saint-Aubert's principle, as well as his inclination, to promote every innocent means of happiness. A well-informed mind, he would say, is the best security against the contagion of folly and vice. The vacant mind is ever on the watch for relief, and ready to plunge into error, to escape from the languor of idleness. Store it with ideas, teach it the pleasure of thinking, and the temptations of the world without will be counteracted by the gratifications derived from the world within. Thought and cultivation are necessary equally to the happiness of a country and a city life. In the first, they prevent the uneasy sensations of indolence, and afford a sublime pleasure in the taste they create for the beautiful and the grand. In the latter, they make dissipation less an object of necessity, and consequently of interest. It was one of Emily's earliest pleasures to ramble among the scenes of nature, nor was it in the soft and glowing landscape that she most delighted. She loved more the wild wood walks that skirted the mountain, and still more the mountain's stupendous recesses, where the silence and grandeur of solitude impressed a sacred awe upon her heart, and lifted her thoughts to the God of heaven and earth. In scenes like these, she would often linger along, wrapped in a melancholy charm, till the last gleam of day faded from the west, till the lonely sound of a sheep-bell, or the distant bark of a watch-dog, were all that broke on the stillness of the evening. Then the gloom of the woods, the trembling of their leaves at intervals in the breeze, the bat flitting on the twilight, the cottage lights now seen and now lost, were circumstances that awakened her mind into effort, and led to enthusiasm and poetry. 
Her favorite walk was to a little fishing-house, belonging to Saint-Aubert, in a woody glen, on the margin of a rivulet that descended from the Pyrenees, and, after foaming among their rocks, wound its silent way beneath the shades it reflected. Above the woods, that screened this glen, rose the lofty summits of the Pyrenees, which often burst boldly on the eye through the glades below. Sometimes the shattered face of a rock only was seen, crowned with wild shrubs, or a shepherd's cabin seated on a cliff overshadowed by dark cypress or waving ash. Emerging from the deep recesses of the woods, the glade opened to the distant landscape, where the rich pastures and vine-covered slopes of Gascony gradually declined to the plains, and there, on the winding shores of the Garonne, groves and hamlets and villas, their outlines softened by distance, melted from the eye into one rich harmonious tint. This, too, was the favorite retreat of Saint-Aubert, to which he frequently withdrew from the fervor of noon, with his wife, his daughter, and his books, or came at the sweet evening hour to welcome the silent dusk, or to listen for the music of the nightingale. Sometimes, too, he brought music of his own, and awakened every fairy echo with the tender accents of his oboe, and often have the tones of Emily's voice drawn sweetness from the waves over which they trembled. It was in one of these excursions to this spot that she observed the following lines written with pencil on a part of the wainscot. Sonnet. Go, pencil, faithful to thy master's sighs. Go, tell the goddess of the fairy scene, when next her light steps wind these wood-walks green, whence all his tears, his tender sorrows rise. Ah, paint her form, her soul illumined eyes, the sweet expression of her pensive face, the lightning smile, the animated grace. The portrait well the lover's voice supplies, speaks all his heart must feel, his tongue would say. Yet, ah, not all his heart must sadly feel. How oft the floweret's silken leaves conceal the drug that steals the vital spark away, and who that gazes on that angel's smile would fear its charm, or think it could beguile. These lines were not inscribed to any person. Emily, therefore, could not apply them to herself, though she was undoubtedly the nymph of these shades. Having glanced round the little circle of her acquaintance without being detained by a suspicion as to whom they could be addressed, she was compelled to rest in uncertainty, an uncertainty which would have been more painful to an idle mind than it was to hers. She had no leisure to suffer this circumstance, trifling at first, to swell into importance by frequent remembrance. The little vanity it had excited, for the incertitude which forbade her to presume upon having inspired the sonnet forbade her also to disbelieve it, passed away, and the incident was dismissed from her thoughts amid her books, her studies, and the exercise of social charities. Soon after this period, her anxiety was awakened by the indisposition of her father, who was attacked with a fever, which, though not thought to be of a dangerous kind, gave a severe shock to his constitution. Madame Saint-Aubert and Emily attended him with unremitting care, but his recovery was very slow, and, as he advanced towards health, Madame seemed to decline. The first scene he visited after he was well enough to take the air was his favourite fishing-house. A basket of provisions was sent thither with books, and Emily's lute. For fishing-tackle he had no use, for he never could find amusement in torturing or destroying. After employing himself for about an hour in botanizing, dinner was served. It was a repast to which gratitude for being again permitted to visit this spot gave sweetness, and family happiness once more smiled beneath these shades. 
Monsieur St. Aubert conversed with unusual cheerfulness. Every object delighted his senses. The refreshing pleasure from the first view of nature, after the pain of illness, and the confinement of a sick chamber, is above the conceptions, as well as the descriptions, of those in health. The green woods and pastures, the flowery turf, the blue concave of the heavens, the balmy air, the murmur of the limpid stream, and even the hum of every little insect of the shade seem to revivify the soul, and make mere existence bliss. Madame St. Aubert, reanimated by the cheerfulness and recovery of her husband, was no longer sensible of the indisposition which had lately oppressed her, and, as she sauntered along the wood-walks of this romantic glen and conversed with him, and with her daughter, she often looked at them alternately with a degree of tenderness that filled her eyes with tears. St. Aubert observed this more than once, and gently reproved her for the emotion, but she could only smile, clasp his hand, and that of Emily, and weep the more. He felt the tender enthusiasm stealing upon himself in a degree that became almost painful. His features assumed a serious air, and he could not forbear sighing secretly. Perhaps I shall some time look back to these moments, as to the summit of my happiness, with hopeless regret. But let me not misuse them by useless anticipation. Let me hope I shall not live to mourn the loss of those who are dearer to me than life." To relieve, or perhaps to indulge, the pensive temper of his mind, he bade Emily fetch the lute she knew how to touch with such sweet pathos. As she drew near the fishing-house, she was surprised to hear the tones of the instrument which were awakened by the hand of taste, and uttered a plaintive air, whose exquisite melody engaged all her attention. She listened in profound silence, afraid to move from the spot, lest the sound of her steps should occasion her to lose a note of the music, or should disturb the musician. Everything without the building was still, and no person appeared. She continued to listen, till timidity succeeded to surprise and delight, a timidity increased by a remembrance of the pencilled lines she had formerly seen, and she hesitated whether to proceed or to return. While she paused, the music ceased, and, after a momentary hesitation, she recollected courage to advance to the fishing-house, which she entered with faltering steps and found unoccupied. Her lute lay on the table, everything seemed undisturbed, and she began to believe it was another instrument she had heard, till she remembered that, when she followed Monsieur and Madame Saint-Aubert from this spot, her lute was left on a window-seat. She felt alarmed, yet knew not wherefore. The melancholy gloom of evening, and the profound stillness of the place, interrupted only by the light trembling of leaves, heightened her fanciful apprehensions, and she was desirous of quitting the building, but perceived herself grow faint, and sat down. As she tried to recover herself, the pencilled lines on the wainscot met her eye. She started as if she had seen a stranger, but, endeavouring to conquer the tremor of her spirits, rose and went to the window. To the lines before noticed, she now perceived that others were added, in which her name appeared. Though no longer suffered to doubt that they were addressed to herself, she was as ignorant as before by whom they could be written. While she mused, she thought she heard the sound of a step without the building, and again alarmed, she caught up her lute and hurried away. Monsieur and Madame Saint-Aubert she found in a little path that wound along the sides of the glen. Having reached a green summit, shadowed by palm-trees, and overlooking the valleys and plains of Gascony, they seated themselves on the turf, 
and while their eyes wandered over the glorious scene, and they inhaled the sweet breath of flowers and herbs that enriched the grass, Emily played and sung several of their favourite airs, with the delicacy of expression in which she so much excelled. Music and conversation detained them in this enchanting spot till the sun's last light slept upon the plains, till the white sails that glided beneath the mountains where the Garonne wandered became dim, and the gloom of evening stole over the landscape. It was a melancholy but not unpleasing gloom. Saint-Aubert and his family rose, and left the place with regret. Alas, Madame Saint-Aubert knew not that she left it for ever. End of Book One, Chapter One, Part A Recorded by Michelle Crandall, Fremont, California, October 2008